Welcome to I'm Fine, You, brought to you by Maybelline New York, where we are normalizing the conversation around anxiety, depression, and mental health. Now here's your host, Chrissy Rutherford. Hello and welcome to I'm Fine, You, presented by Maybelline New York. Maybelline's Braid Together initiative is dedicated to breaking the stigma around anxiety and depression while addressing challenges and providing resources to those in need. Hi, I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and on this podcast, we're channeling this mission into real-life conversations to help normalize the topic of mental health and provide tangible resources and guidance for anyone who needs a mental health boost. To provide mental health resources, Maybelline New York will make a monetary donation to mental health organizations in conjunction with each episode. Today, I am so happy to be joined by the one and only optimism doctor, Dr. Deepika Chopra. Dr. Chopra specializes in bridging together holistic practices and evidence-based science to cultivate self-mastery tools to help people grow their own sense of lasting happiness, resiliency, optimism, and success. Dr. Chopra has been an integral part of the wellness community for over a decade and joins us now to talk about the science behind cultivating optimism, resiliency, and so much more. Welcome, Dr. Chopra. Hi, it's so nice to see you, Chrissy. Nice to see you too. I feel so official calling you doctor. I know. I haven't seen you in forever, but it's so nice to connect. I was so excited to see your name on this. Yes. Like anytime I get to talk to a mental health expert, I just always get really excited because it's one of my favorite topics to talk about, of course. And you obviously hold a doctorate in clinical psychology, clinical health psychology with a special interest in mind-body connection, sensory-based visual imagery, color therapy, and innovative cognitive behavioral strategies. That's a mouthful. How did you first become interested in the science of optimism and resilience? Honestly, I really got into it by sort of my own personal quest. I did not get into the field of psychology in a linear fashion. I actually started my career, I dabbled in working at a punk label out here in LA. Oh my God. Wow. I love and that. Then, but wait, it gets even more ridiculous. <laughs> After that, I was an investment banker. (laughs) Um, And then from there, I actually worked in the public health space. And so that was sort of my foray into kind of blending together what I was doing, which was basically I was in the business world, but I was really interested in the greater good of humans. And I've always been intrigued by humans. And I, in retrospect, kind of looking back, I guess it makes sense. I was always really sort of empathic and in tune with not only my mm-hmm. emotions, but others. But I always felt like that was a reason to sort of stay away from this field. I mean, I was the kid that when the Titanic came out, I literally did not go to school for 10 days because I was a wreck. Okay. I love that you're saying that because I love talking about the experience of seeing the movie Titanic as a kid. I had a full-blown panic attack In the theater, my mom had to take me out. Like I was there with like friends and I think my mom was also there. And literally I had to leave the theater because it made me so anxious. And I actually watched it again, I think at the end of last year, maybe early this year. And again, like, 
you know, when there's just like that panic, because I think when you're really empathic and like you are imagining yourself in their position. Yes. yes. And it's terrifying. For me, I was like this kid <laughs> that literally I had a really big issue with sort of like when things were not just, and it's still something I struggle with, but it really overwhelmed me. And especially in the like sort of realm of unrequited love or like when two people couldn't be together and it was just like heart wrenching Mm -hmm. and things that you probably wouldn't think a child or like a preteen would be so consumed with, but I really was. And so looking back, it was interesting. My parents didn't really protect me from knowledge ever. They were always very much like learning is power and we're not going to sort of shield you from that. But they did protect me and shield me from things that were like really sad or they knew were going to wreck me because literally this kept me out for 10 days. And hold on, let's just break for a second. How crazy is it that we're just talking about the Titanic? And like, maybe this was our first real visceral experience of something mental health related. And we're on this podcast and not even like on purpose, but that's so... Truly. That's that's amazing. So I was sort of like basically working within the public health sector and I had an amazing boss, an amazing mentor who went well above and beyond to really just listen and watch and point out times that he felt I was sort of like ticking and turned on. And then also he was really open to feedback and sort of mentoring me and being able for me to sort of share or him to even point out and be like, I don't think this is for you. And so the company had an office in the UK, which I know you're there right now. And so Mm -hmm. I spent half my time as a very young sort of young 20s, working back and forth between the US and there. And it was not glamorous at all. It was like an hour outside (laughs) London. It was like not, no. I think that was part of the reason also that it just didn't work out for me. It was many things, but one of the things was lifestyle, which I know is really important. That's something we talk about. Mm -hmm. It wasn't very sustainable or conducive to like a very young 20s person. I was alone all the time. But anyway, so while I was there, there was a management meeting in this little town called Calais in France. And they brought in an organizational psychologist who was mainly there to kind of do more of the psych work from like a leadership perspective. And after the three days, he sort of pulled me aside and he was like, I have never seen you so passionate and so sort of clued in and turned on than you had been in those three days. Have you ever thought about the intersection between business, deal-making, and psychology? And I was like, oh, I think you're right. I think that's what I want to do. But actually, when I started digging in a little deeper, I said, maybe I'm interested in clinical psychology. And I quit my job. I flew back, and I knocked on every single door at my alma mater at UCLA at the Neuropsychiatric Institute, just begging anyone to let me volunteer before I had to do all my prereqs and apply to grad school because it's a huge process. Mm -hmm. And so from there, basically, I got given the opportunity to do two internships, volunteerships. One was clinical, and I worked with a set of diagnosed OCD patients, and one was more research-based which at the time UCLA was running a schizophrenic research study. And so I got to do both and not a big surprise to me, but clearly I was very intrigued and loved the clinical portion. And then from there, it was history. I did my master's, did a doctorate, did my internships and a double postdoc fellowship at both UCLA and Cedars. So I've always kind of remained in LA. And during that time, I was personally very intrigued by positive psychology and this idea of hope and 
I kind of became obsessed with why are we always studying all the things that are wrong or not going well? Why aren't we actually studying? Sure, it's a smaller subset, but when things are really going well or working out or something is being modeled to us or showing us that it's working, how come we're not studying that? Or even with people, I started, you know, seeing clients very early on or patients as we'd call them then because we were at the hospital. But when I was seeing patients, I'd go back to my supervisors and I would like very many times be like, I don't know if I'm doing much good because I feel like I'm just, I know there's value in just being a listener and echoing back and providing a safe space for people. But I really became passionate about sort of like, then what? I wanted to be people's then what? Okay, this isn't working you sort of know why. Maybe you've been in therapy before, but instead of sort of focusing on that, why don't we kind of investigate like, okay, now what? So I really became passionate about how do we actually change people's mindset to make real change and to actually be able to shift people's thoughts and not just for a moment or to talk about sort of you know, what they wanted to be different in the moment or what wasn't working out, but like real belief change. And so within that realm, I really dug into the idea of changing positive future thoughts and optimism and what the science behind happiness was. And I found myself really, really, at that time, there was not a lot done on this topic. This is well over a decade ago. But what I did keep running into was a lot of the research that had already been done in that sort of world was in sports psychology. And so there was a lot done on this idea of visualization. And so I became a visualization, a visual imagery expert. I did my dissertation on all of this. And again, what sort of pattern and I'm lucky with is I had really good supervision and mentorship and both at UCLA and Cedars, they allowed me to sort of be innovative. And while I was doing my dissertation, I could use that population and my patients there to sort of do things differently and come up with a new way of therapy, if you will. Yeah. So cool. Well, first I want to say, I love how you reinvented yourself. You know, I think sometimes people, they start off in one career and sort of feel like they have to stay in that career and just like work their way up and like hope things get better. But I really like the idea of like, yeah, you can be anything that you want to be and you can start over at any age. And I think that's, you know, always really important. But then, yeah, when it comes to optimism, like you've noted that there's a lot of misunderstandings around what optimism actually is, right? I think a lot of people can get optimism kind of confused with toxic positivity, but how would you define optimism? What is it? What is it not? And why is it not always about being positive all the time? That is such a good question. And most certainly sort of my favorite place to start when talking about optimism. Yeah. Optimism. And I understand why it just gets this sort of misunderstood sort of like rap. I think that people often think optimism means being positive 24-7 or they sort of picture that like the glass is always half full or they're looking at the world through rose-colored sunglasses or glasses. I threw in the word sun. I know that's not what the saying is. (laughs) But you know, as someone that really studies it, I often share that optimism is not just about being positive. And, and I think it's really interesting because I'll speak in front of a large audience and I'll always 
ask, when you guys think of the word optimism, what's another word that comes up for you? And of course, most people shout out positivity. And I think they're really surprised to learn that as someone that is known as the optimism doctor, I share that positivity is sort of like maybe the third, fourth, fifth word that comes up for me. When I think of optimism, the first two words that are very sort of prominent in my forefront are resiliency and curiosity. Mm -hmm. And so I never really like to say an optimist or a pessimist because also when studying this stuff, I realized that you're both. You are an optimist and you're a pessimist and we fall on the continuum. We're on that continuum differently in different parts of our lives and different aspects and at different times. And so Mm -hmm. where you could be very naturally sort of drawn to being more optimistic in certain categories of life. Like for me, there's many categories of life where I think just naturally I'm someone that errs on the side of sort of optimism. But then if it has anything to do with self sort of medical related stuff, I am really falling on the continuum very, very near the pessimism realm. And that's where my true work lies. That's my Achilles heel. Mm. And so Knowing that about myself is where I can sort of have a pinpoint start. And so I started sort of giving people a quasi, not a very formal, but an optimism factor scale test when I was working with clients. And it was really interesting because it started to sort of put some adjectives or characteristics around what their sort of optimism factor really is. And all of us are different. So that's number one. I don't think any of us are a true optimist or a true pessimist. We're on that continuum. We're constantly shifting. But when someone is, you know, working towards or in a more optimistic state, to define that and what that state is, you know, someone truly there or that state, optimism is not about disregarding the setbacks and the less than ideal situations and the roadblocks that, by the way, come up for all of us every single day and will for the remainder of our lives because that is part of the human existence. Nobody lives a life that is without roadblocks, setbacks, less than ideal situations. And that's a really important thing to note and to really accept. And that is literally the opposite of toxic positivity. So someone truly in an optimistic state recognizes they're fully aware of the roadblock setbacks, less than ideal situations. But the caveat is they really see those things as temporary and something that they have the ability and power to overcome even if they do not know how or when, but they know that they can and will. And a lot of that is based on their own personal resiliency. So things they've already overcome. You know, you might be in your 30s. I don't know. I am. That means you have, yes. Well, I'm guessing just because we're probably around the same age because we (laughs) had the same experience with the Titanic. (laughs) Yes. So, you know, when you look at that, we've all overcome all of our hardest days. And our hardest days are our hardest days. That is not in relation to anybody else's hardest days. And so through those hard times, whatever they are for us, Yes, they were not easy and we probably wouldn't want to wish those things upon ourselves again, but I think that a lot of times we can forget that through those hard times, we persevered. And while we persevered, we built resiliency. And while we built resiliency, we're building our optimism. And so there is no optimism without persevering through a struggle. Absolutely. And I completely relate to that. And I think in my 30s now, it has really made me realize that I really am an optimist. Also, because sometimes 
when you hear the word optimist, well, then you know that the opposite is pessimist. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is something about that, that you're like, oh, well, optimist means you're positive all the time. So like, that's not me. I'm definitely not someone who is positive all the time, but I do believe in my own ability to like navigate really difficult times because I have been through really difficult times. I mean, even just, you know, I had my first panic attack when I was like 12, 13 years old, like that was not an easy time to navigate. And that really, you know, affected the rest of my life and through so much work in like therapy and work I've done on my own, I've been able to overcome so much. And so, yeah, now at this stage in my life, I'm like, I know that I can handle the tough times that come my way because I've done it before and I know I can do it again. Yes. And, you know, the whole notion of optimism is really about being keenly aware of how you really feel. So your authentic, true Mm -hmm. feeling. And oftentimes that might be, you know, a feeling of anger or sadness or worry or mourning, anxiety, fear, whatever those are. Because again, stress. We all experience the full range of emotions. And so this idea of optimism is being able to sit in that authentic feeling, but at the very same time that you are validating that feeling and not squishing it or putting it under the rug, but at the very same time that you are authentically feeling it and accepting it and sort of going with it, you are still able to hold an open space for hope. So it's being able to do something called and, not one or the other. It's, I'm really fearful right now. I'm anxious right now, but I'm also hopeful. And I also believe truly that something's going to change and that I will not always be anxious about this. And I have been anxious in the past and I've worked through that Mm -hmm. and I will work through this, but I also recognize that I am anxious right now. And here are the reasons why. Absolutely. So let's get into toxic positivity. What is it and why is it important to avoid this type of mindset? So you know how we just talked about this whole idea that we as humans experience the full range of emotions. Mm -hmm. So toxic positivity, really we can look at it as even though it comes from a place of, I believe most of the time, good intention, it really starts to become the disregard or even the vilification of the normal range of human emotion. And it actually, again, not intentionally, but actually can serve as this opposition to validation, hope, and the recognition of resiliency. And so it can actually be really detrimental. And an example of that is really, you know, that statement that has become super popular over the last, I'd say, half decade of good vibes only. I cannot think of a statement (laughs) that actually makes me shudder or I'm just going to be honest, like pisses me off more than the statement of good vibes only. And I understand the intention behind it, but what we're really saying when we say that, or when someone looks at that and what they really internalize is that there is no space for any sort of emotion other than one that is good and good meaning positive. And that's just setting us all up for a failure because like we spoke about earlier, all of us, part of the human existence to make you a human you experience the full range of human emotion, which includes worry, sadness, like we said, anger, frustration, Mm -hmm. stress, all of these things. So I think other things that are sort of toxically positive that again, come from a good intention, but now that we're sort of aware of it, we shouldn't necessarily use are things like, you'll get over it. 
you know, or, you know, it could be worse is a really tricky one. I think we do that to ourselves. (laughs) Sometimes people say, yeah, sometimes people say it's a good way of sort of having better perspective. Keeping perspective. But actually it's kind of toxically positive if you think about it, because you're basically saying this emotion that I feel towards this situation that's happening, someone else had it worse. So mine's not that bad. And, you know, whereas sometimes that can make you feel better, it also can be complete disregard and the vilification of allowing you to say, this really sucks for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Like, you know, no matter what's going on, it's like there's definitely people in worse situations, but it doesn't mean that what you're going through isn't difficult, isn't hard for you, isn't challenging for you. And like, isn't valid for you to feel. Right. And again, it's back to that idea that we also don't want to sit in something that makes us feel really bad and be paralyzed there. It's the idea of that fine line of sitting in something, whatever the emotion is, your body and mind don't lie. They're very smart. Your brain knows when you're lying to it. So if you don't feel right or you are upset about something, you can't just say, I'm not upset. It's that fine line of I'm upset, but I know that it will get better, but I'm upset right now. These are the reasons. I deserve to be upset. It's okay to be upset. Absolutely. So something else I wanted to speak with you about is the things that we can all do each day to cultivate more optimism and resilience in our lives. What are some of the practical steps that you like to recommend for people to take each day to sharpen these skills that they might already have? Yes. Well, Literally, that question is the reason why I created the Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards, which I think you have. I think I've sent you one. Have I ever sent you one? I don't think you have. Will you send me? Oh my gosh. Well, I will send you one. Okay. (laughs) Basically, it is a set of 52 cards and each one has a science-based suggestion or prompt that actually works to increase optimism, hope, and resiliency. And so they are not affirmation cards. They are prompt cards. They actually tell you what to do. And so- They're so cute. I have some favorite little ideas that I'll share with you right now, but here's 52 of them and I'll send them to you. I'll send them your way. Um, So for me, what I really like to focus on is, of course, for true, you know, deep mindset shift work, it's obviously very useful and- powerful to have professional therapy, especially someone that really does focus on more cognitive behavioral strategies, or I guess in my mm-hmm. case, a really niche like in optimism or, or increasing more positive future beliefs. But there are so many things that we can do on an everyday basis to set ourselves up and prime ourselves for this. And I really like to focus my sort of passion and specialty is focusing on the resources that people already have. So this is just you as a human. This is not some very expensive product or like you don't have to go to this retreat or like not talk for two weeks, whatever it is. It's not something that's inaccessible. (laughs) I like to really work with people by, you know, sort of sharpening skills and resources that they already have. So for me, this stuff that is the part of mental health that's really important is what's accessible because I think that's one of the biggest barriers to anyone that wants to seek out help or have, you know, more growth in their lives is we have a real lack of accessibility in this country and generally speaking everywhere. Totally. And so first of Mm -hmm. all, um, it sounds really simple, but there's a lot of research behind the idea that if you spend more time outdoors, that is a way to really increase more positive mood and to decrease stress cortisol levels. And so to sort of put it in 
a more measurable way, what the research found is that if you spend just two hours on average per week outdoors, and you don't even have to be exercising or anything, it's just being outdoors, right? preferably in nature, but you know, outdoors in some way, yeah. just two hours a week, it is known to really impact your affect and mood and helps you with dealing with stress in a better way. So that's something that obviously is easier for some of us, depending on where we live and what time of year it is. But I think all of us can try to commit to just spending a little more time outdoors. Mm-hmm. That's a really big one that I think is sort of a little bit easy to implement in our daily lives. And then another thing that I have come across that I found really interesting in the recent research, I like this one because I think a lot of people haven't heard of it. I know a lot of people have heard of the idea of gratitude, which can either be a good thing or a bad thing because I feel like they've heard it so many times that they probably don't practice it because it's just like gratitude. But I like to sort of look towards what isn't being talked about and where is there some strong evidence to really increase positive mood and to give us a tool. So one of those that came up a few years ago that I thought was so interesting is this idea that I've been talking about a lot on a lot of my speaking engagements, but it's this idea of using awe to combat anxiety. So Basically, it's this idea that research has found that one of the best ways to sort of work through your anxiety is to spend more time in the state of awe, A-W-E. And what I mean by that is like putting yourself in a position or a situation in which you're transcended into something bigger than yourself, something that feels like it's inspiring to you. Those things can be looking at a piece of art. It can be listening to a beautiful piece of music. It could be reading literature. It could be, you know, a number of things, spending time with someone or watching someone give a lecture on something that really inspires you. It could be one of the things that really they got this research from is they studied astronauts in space. And going up in space is a very stressful thing. I mean, can you imagine this tiny little like claustrophobic, right? Like it's anxiety producing. I truly could not imagine. (laughs) Yeah. And even though these are things astronauts prep for, it's still an anxiety provoking type of Field. And what they found is that there was something that was actually protecting some of them. And that protection was, can you imagine anything more awe-inspiring than probably seeing space for the first time in your life? And so it makes you feel like you are part of something much, much bigger. And it's very inspiring. Mm-hmm. So spending more time in awe. Also, another thing that is quite interesting is even though we all have probably heard the saying of you are the company that you keep. There's actually been research to show that basically happiness can actually be contagious. I mean that in an authentic way, and they measured it, that whoever you keep in your network, if the people that are close to you are happy and their friends and their friends are happy, you are more likely to be happy. So it is interesting if you can kind of take a close network sweep and just start to think about who you spend most of your time with. And I know we all looked at that, especially during the pandemic. I think that was one of the silver linings that came out of it. It was sort of just the sheer, what am I consuming? And I mean, consuming from, sure, what we eat, what we drink, but also the news that we consume, the friends that we give our energy to, the sites online that we give our energy to, like who are we letting in basically and what are we letting in, thinking about what we consume in all realms and how much of that that you're consuming is sort of authentic happiness or authentic people that are committed to their personal growth or people that are on the same quest and journey in 
helping you to personally grow. Yeah. So it's really looking at who you're sort of around. I also think another one that's really important is spending a little more of your time, if you could, and your energy on purpose over productivity. So I think that's an interesting one because we live in a culture where I think just productivity is number one. It's king. King. Um, how much are you, right? How much are you producing? If you have free time, you must not be doing a good enough job. We measure our success on the hours that we work or how busy we are. We really, I know that's something we all do. We sort of put this premium on like how busy we are. And if, I'm not trying to say that there is not a value in that. I think a lot of these things we have to look at and really understand where there's privilege. And some people really have to be very busy in order to put food on their table. And I think that a lot of mental health conversations are missing that piece of we can't always just focus on our purpose. Like we have to produce. So I think that where we can sort of start is after looking at what you need to do to survive. That is the most important. Survival is obviously extremely important. But past that, I think all of us can look into our lives and see, even if it's one or two minutes a day to focus on something that brings us joy or purpose in our lives, that is okay. And I think I talk about this a lot, this idea of micro moments. Before I became a mom, I think I had, especially in doing what I do, I took a lot of pride and I made it really important to do a lot of activities that I guess would be in the bucket of self-care. And that made me feel good. And I had like time to journal it and say, this makes me feel good. Or when I think this or do this, this makes me feel good. And then I became a mom. Didn't you also have a little dance ritual? I do. And I still do. Um, I, I, that, that came out of this process where I became a mom and I all of a sudden was one of those people that for good reason was like, I'm too busy. I have no time for me. My mental health was really suffering and everyone around me was suffering. And I started to understand that when I would look at things like, oh, you know what? It really helped me to take 10 minutes to meditate or it really helped me to do my own visual imageries. Like I write these for people. You know, I used to do them myself. And then I would start to say, well, I don't have 10 minutes, so there's no point in doing it. Or, you know, this is a luxury, but what helped me in my work with seeing people so much and and sort of taking on the energy was like I would have every few weeks a massage. Body work was really important to my, I hold all my stress up here. And so I would look at it and say, well, I don't have an hour to have a massage. And so I started to say, I don't have the time to do all these things, so I did nothing. And then one day I woke up and said, I have three minutes right now. I woke up and I have three minutes before it's time to feed the baby. I started making a list and jotting down the things that bring me joy. And so the next time I had three minutes or four minutes, I looked at my list and I said, oh, turning on music and dancing, I know that brings me joy. I have three minutes. I'm going to do it. So I did it. And then I said, I walked by one of those manicure places and I had five minutes. And I said, I'm going to get a neck massage for five minutes on a chair. I don't have an, a time for an hour massage. There's no way I could fit that in for the next two months, but I have time for a five minute. So I started taking advantage of these things that I called micro moments. And so I started to realize that even the smallest moment, there is no moment too small for an act of joy or self-care. I love that. And having those few moments throughout the day really saved me. So I think that it's really important to realize that, that you will always have two minutes here and there throughout your day that you can do something and it will still be very meaningful. It may be more meaningful than being able to plan out something far advanced that maybe you just don't have the time to do anymore. 
Yeah, I know. It's so interesting how we often like just lose sight of the things that we know make us happy. It's like, why can't we make the time to do the things that make us happy? And yeah, I think, you know, especially when it comes to the timing, like you make such a brilliant point that it's like, you don't have to like carve out an entire day. Like, you know, I really love to read. And there were times where I wouldn't pick up a book because I'm like, uh, if I pick up this book, like I have to read for an hour. By the way, that's exactly like, why the deck is a deck. It was going to be a book and there is a book coming, but it was going to be a book. But I was like, the whole purpose of it is that each of these prompts take less than a minute to do. And a lot of times we feel the pressure when you look at a book to say, if I can't get through a significant thing or even a chapter, then there's no point in reading. Right. Like if I can't read for an hour, then like, what's the point? And actually like a friend of mine had written an article for his newsletter about how to be a better reader and literally said like, you know, you can just read for 15 minutes. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so right. Like I can just read for 15 minutes. Isn't that amazing how when like someone else kind of gives us permission Life for something that we probably could have given <laughs> ourselves permission for, you know, a way, something that really helps this whole conversation that we're having a tip that I would say is take out your phone. You know, sometimes our phones are good for something. Take out our phone, <laughs> go to your notes section. And when you have a little bit of time, even if it's five minutes, get an ongoing list of all the things that bring you joy. So if you're walking down the street even, and I don't know, you are going down this one street for a walk and it brings you joy, put that down on your happy list, your joy list. Mm -hmm. Make a list, a running yes. list. So the next time you only have two minutes, it's going to be a lot easier for you to just go back to your joy list and say, what one of these things speaks out to me that I can do in two minutes? Because you won't remember it in those two minutes. Right. Oh my God. So good. Such a good idea. I love it. I'm absolutely doing that tonight. The, like last tip that I think is really important. Well, I, there's so many, but I guess I'm going to share two more. <laughs> the next one is sort of this idea that I think is counterintuitive for us, which is why I want to highlight it. We live in this culture where we're constantly focused on what can we improve on or what are we not doing a good job of and how can we do better even when we're working in groups, like we're always sort of being checked on like, well, okay, we did that. We got through that goal, but like, what can we improve on? Yeah. And so I would say we already do that enough in our lives. I'm not saying that it's not important to think about what you can improve on, how you can grow, but I don't have to talk about that because I think we already naturally do that. But what I do want to talk yes. about is spending more time throughout your day, focusing on your strengths and really trusting your competence. Like there is not a lot of time that we give to actually say, I'm really good at this totally. and to focus on that, right? Because it's that whole, if it's not broken, don't fix it. But I'm saying if it's not broken and it's working, focus on it and keep building on that. Your brain will start to problem solve better and come up with new ideas to new goals and solutions to new goals. If you focus on the things you're already really good at and you give space to pat yourself on the back and to recognize what your strengths are. That is really important. And then the last one is just basically, you know, this little thing called self-compassion. Mm -hmm. You can never be wrong when you start to solve any problem you're having with self-compassion. It's always the first place to start. It's a hard one. It's easy to say, but... It really is. I really love meditating. And lately I've been doing Dr. Kristen Neff's self-compassion meditations and they're so great and like have really, really helped me in times where I'm having like just really intense anxiety. I have to send you the deck and also some custom written guided visual imageries for you. 
please do. I will send. And, you know, no matter who we are, like we all feel pressure and stress, obviously. And you've discussed the pressure that you feel as a mental health professional when it comes to dealing with your own mental health issues. Why is it so important for you to be transparent about your own experience and let people know that even though you're known as the optimism doctor, like you are not always the biggest optimist and you still struggle even in your own family? Yeah. I mean, I would say that the reason for that, number one, is that I'm someone that wears my heart on my sleeve and I can't really do things in a prepackaged kind of strategic way. Like maybe like someone, I don't know, like you go get your hair done from someone and maybe you want to see that they have really nice hair (laughs) or like, you know, you want to see, you go, we have this thing as humans, but I was always like worried when this started organically happening and it's what I was passionate about. And I really, I know the research and I know my strengths are that I'm really good at helping people grow and mindset shift and change their lives. But I started to say, I don't really know if I want to go forward with this and it's happening so fast because I'm not the most optimistic person. And I don't want to like live some sort of weird false lie and say that I am. And there's a lot of people out there that are sort of more I don't know, they're looked at as like gurus or it's like this space where you look to them and kind of you want to emulate them. And that is just not me. And so I just decided the only way I'm going to be able to do this is if I'm transparent and honest and I do it my way. And so I start almost every session being like, listen, I know I'm known as the optimism doctor, but I want to share with you guys that I am not the most optimistic person. I could probably name (laughs) three or four people in my own family who are far more optimistic than me. And that you know, on one hand, I'm open with that because I also think it's really important since we're even defining what optimism is. And a lot of it is about, you know, being authentic to your true feeling and sharing your true human, the full range of emotions. And so I feel like I couldn't even be speaking about this stuff if I wasn't sharing. And I'm also just a very share type of person. I'm super transparent and I sort of just was doing that because that's me. And then I think as an afterthought, I have realized that it's helpful and I think it helps to be relatable. And I often share my struggle and and sort of my work with the tools as well. And sometimes the tools are really hard for me. Like I've been in situations, you know, my first pregnancy, I was so ill. I had something called hyperemesis gravidarum And I literally threw up 36 times a day for the entire time. And I remember sharing, you know, at around seven months, I had five minutes at seven months pregnant, only five minutes, but it was my first five minutes of any form of hope that I had in seven months. So for seven months, the tools were not working for me. Yeah, And I was open with that and shared it. And it was so humbling, to be honest. I think that it's really important to share. Um, And then, yeah, I think that because I've always been interested in this and I've always sort of been the person in my sort of growing up childhood friend group that, I don't know, everyone sort of told everything to. I was like a very good secret keeper <laughs> and I like talking to people. And so I think that I it's even in my family, I was sort of known as the problem solver. And I think over time, it was something that gave me great joy and I obviously was getting something from it. But I also think what started to happen, and again, for good intention and good reason, there was no bad intentions. I think when I started to have any issue or problems that were even normal, just I wanted to talk about it was really uncomfortable and kind of like, well, why, like, why can't you solve this? And then as I became, you know, doing what I do, I have definitely had, you know, very close friends or family kind of be like, 
that's not very optimistic of you, or you're the optimism doctor, like, so you should be able to get out of this, like right now, or like, you know, they don't automatically or very quickly afford me the same types of just human emotion and process. And I have, I think I had to work through that. And now I realize being more vocal about it and saying, hey, listen, I'm human too. And remember, I am not the most optimistic person and I need help. And so I have to ask for it a little louder, I think. And it's worked out. And I think that once pointed out, everyone is sort of very much like, oh my God, you're right. I'm sorry. So I think that, you know, for someone in the field, it can be, I think, a positive thing to be transparent, to show so that you are also afforded those human experiences yourself. Absolutely. And I'm sure like it also probably makes the people that you work with like feel better in a sense that it's like you're working on these skills, like just in the same way that they are, you know, it's not like, oh, you're someone who's like, you're like, I have it all figured out, which can probably feel like overwhelming to people who are in like a challenging situation and trying to work on being more optimistic. Yeah. And I also feel like it literally, that mentality is literally the opposite of what I'm saying optimism is. You know what I mean? Like nobody has it all figured out. And so for me, I am someone that I know a lot of people do gravitate to those type of experts or people they really look up to. And there is power in that. It's just not the kind of one that I mm-hmm. want to be. Not because there's anything wrong with that, but mainly because I literally just don't have the personality to be able to be that. And there is a lot of forms of you know, therapeutic relationships that I learned in, in a more clinical setting where you don't really share. I'm not saying I share a ton with my patients that don't need to be shared with, but I also don't really, that didn't sit well with me. And so there was a lot of things in traditional sort of training that I really look to and thank as my foundation to be doing the work I'm doing. But there's a lot of things also that I felt just didn't sit well with me and didn't feel right to me. And I felt we're a bit antiquated. And so I don't practice clinically anymore. I sort of do my own thing now. And the benefit of that is I kind of get to do it my own way. There's also obviously cons and every if you choose to do your own path. But yeah, so I feel like the only way I can do any of this is kind of just to be open and honest. And the people that want to work that way, I think, gravitate towards that. And then there's, you know, other people where maybe they don't want to know anything and they kind of just want someone to model and see someone that maybe they appear to have it all together in all realms. And that's fine too. It's just not me. I don't have it all together. More so than not. (laughs) I also just wanted to speak to, obviously you're a mother and you are also working in like increasing optimism and empathy in children. So what are some of the most helpful things you have observed when it comes to empowering children and mindful parenting? Yeah, that's such a good question. I was actually talking to my husband about this the other day. Another thing that kind of (laughs) just, I like to be really open as you can tell, but another thing that kind of (laughs) doesn't work for me is when I see a parenting expert seem to have it all together, for some reason, it makes me feel insecure and kind of at shame because I know I don't have it all together as a parent. And so I realized that like, maybe that's something about me. Maybe it's sort of like the whole Instagram highlight reels in general and making everyone feel like they're not good enough. And so what I do is even though there might be some valuable information there, I started to look at some of the people that I followed and be like, am I actually getting something good from this? Or am I just looking at this and being like, "Ugh, 
yeah, I tried that 10 times and you don't know, like that doesn't work. And I, that you're making me feel shameful because it's not that easy. And so I unfollowed most parenting. It's kind of like a thing I just realized and I'm like very okay with it. But like one realm of like experts I don't like to follow are parenting experts because I feel like you are an expert in your own parenting. You know, your children and your parenting style and the circumstances that are happening in your home and the stressors and the not stressors, like you know those all so much more well. And there is no one size fit all approach that's going to work for any of us. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that I will say, so having said that, I will say I am not a parenting expert. I do know the research and I like to just be someone that disseminates research and what research says. And then I'm very curious as to how you work that for yourself. And I'm always like loving that feedback because I've seen how I can sort of make it work in my circumstances. And sometimes it just doesn't. But the one thing that Mm -hmm. I do think is really important in raising more resilient and optimistic children from a science-based research perspective is modeling. And we know that about children. Children learn from modeling. They watch your behavior, who they're mostly around, whether it's friends, parents, but really they get most of it from their home and their parents. They look up to you. So what I realized is watching my language is a really big one. Trying not to, and oftentimes I catch myself, but trying not to say things that are really much more leaning towards pessimistic type of phrases. Like if I'm upset about something being like, oh, this is always going to be this way. Right. You know, or trying to come off from phrases that are sort of leading towards being frustrated and upset. Nothing's going to change and you have no power or ability to make it change. And so like using absolutes, like this is never going to work or this is always going to be like this. (laughs) Exactly. And then also on the flip side, making sure that I'm modeling for them and not shielding them completely from the times that are sort of challenging. So of course you have to use your own parental and human guiding point on what is to share and what is not. But I don't sweep everything under the rug. I have a five-year-old and I have a two-year-old, but he's seen plenty of times in his five years where we've been challenged and we've been frustrated by something. But not only do I show him that and I try to be aware, which by the way, helps me myself to make a better reaction because I'm mindful of it and he's watching, but I also show him the resolve. So I don't just leave it there. Like even if my husband and I have an argument, as long as it's something that's, you know, benign and something we can work through and we're respecting each other, Mm -hmm. he can be there. But I also want to show him the resolve. Don't forget the resolve, Mm -hmm. you know, and don't forget to repeat later and highlight, remember when I was frustrated about X, Y, and Z, and then here are the steps I took to get through it. And look, I'm not frustrated about it anymore. Or look how it worked out, even if it's a month later. Yeah. I love it. Deepika, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Chrissy. I had so much fun catching up. Have a good one. Thank you. You too. I give a huge thank you to Dr. Chopra for coming on the show today, sharing her wisdom and showing us a pathway to being more optimistic and resilient in our lives. We're here to provide access to mental health resources and support to those who need it most. Make sure you're subscribed to I'm Fine You. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review and tell us what you'd like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and this has been I'm Fine You, presented by Maybelline New York.